My name is Jamie, I'm one of the pastors here. It is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. Luke, chapter 13. We'll pick up reading where we left off last Lord's Day. I'm going to read the passage, ask for the Lord's help on our time together, and then we'll work through this passage a little bit at a time, should be around 45 minutes or so. Here at Pickle Baptist, we believe the Scripture is self-authenticating. And by this we mean that its authority uh, does not belong to the testimony of human beings or to any church, for that matter, and that God's will and God's intentions are revealed to us in the Bible The Bible is the supreme and final authority about what is right and what is true. And in matters that are not specifically addressed by the Bible, what is right and true about those matters can be assessed by criteria that is consistent with the teaching of the Bible. That's what we believe about the authority of the Bible. And so it is to this Bible that we now turn. Here now the word of the Lord. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir. Let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow ourselves before you, humbled by your kindness and grace. Both to unite us to your Son and to gather us into a body where we can come on a Sunday morning and we can hear your word sung, prayed, and now preached. And so we ask now that your Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear what Jesus is saying to his church. Amen. Why do bad things happen to good people? Just about any time there is a tragedy, it begs this question, why do bad things happen to good people? And so how would you answer this question? 
How does the Bible answer this question? Well, if we believe, as we just stated, that the Scripture is the final authority on all claims as to what is right and true, what is the Bible's answer to this question? What does the Bible say about why bad things happen to good people? Well, there are several answers given in the book of Job. Job seems to deal with the question of why bad things happen to good people, or a good person for this matter. The Bible teaches that uh, Job was blameless, that he was upright, that he feared God and turned away from evil, and that he was a rich man, and he was, uh, had a huge estate, lots of livestock, and a giant family, and then one day Job lost everything. Lots of bad things to a good person. And what was the answer that Job himself gave to answer that question? The, Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, then Job himself gets very sick. And Job's wife offers an answer to the question and she says, curse God and die. <laughs> Real sweetie she was. And then in Job's suffering, Job's three friends come to him, each one of them having their own answer as to why bad things happen to good people. And I guess you could, you could summarize their answers together by saying uh, they don't. Bad things happen to bad people. Job, you're a bad person. This is your fault. You must have done something to deserve this. It's simple math. What goes around comes around. These boys invented karma even before the Hindus. But Job insists upon his innocence. I, I, I didn't do anything to deserve this. And Job sort of calls God to the stand. Let him answer as to why these bad things are happening. Let the Almighty answer for his actions. And he does. In Job chapters 38 to 41 are some of the most glorious chapters in Holy Scripture. And the Lord's basic answer to Job is, you want my answer, Job? Sure. But I've got a couple of questions before I answer your questions. And the first is, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? I mean, you, Job, know so much about how the earth works. Where were you when I told the land and the sea this far and no more? Is it you who commands the sun? Do you send the rain? Do the clouds listen to you? Does lightning ask for your permission before it strikes? Is it your hand that feeds the lions and keeps every ecosystem in balance? And this goes on and on and on for a couple of chapters. And Job finally responds, uh, maybe I spoke out of turn. I'll keep my hand over my mouth. And God says, no, 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 no. You put me on the stand, young man. Square up. Adorn yourself in majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself in glory and splendor. Let's have it out. And then finally Job says, I spoke of things 
that I did not understand. And so the Bible gives an answer in the book of Job. There is a great big God and we are very little people. And that God is good, better than we can imagine, and that He is doing more good than we could possibly understand, redeeming what man broke by sin. So trust Him. The late Tim Keller put it like this. If we knew everything God knows, we'd ask for exactly what He's giving us. In the passage before us, the Lord Jesus answers the question, why do bad things happen? What do we do with tragedy? And from this passage, we learn two very important things about life in general and about suffering in particular. And the first is this, that disaster and suffering are good teachers. That disaster and suffering are good teachers. And the second is that God's mercy is unlimited, but time is not. That God's mercy is unlimited, but time is not. If you could summarize this passage, I think it would be this. That disaster and suffering Remind us to trust in the Lord and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The disaster and suffering remind us to trust in the Lord and to bear fruit in the place He has planted us with repentance. Let's have a look at verses 1 to 5 again. As we learn that disaster and suffering are good teachers. So people come to Jesus, and they tell him about a situation. The Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus answers, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered like that? No, he says. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then Jesus brings something up on his own. He says, Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than everyone else in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If you've been with us in this uh, study through the Gospel of Luke, you'll remember that Luke 12 has been largely about how to follow Jesus. It's been largely about what Jesus expects of us as, as His followers and whatever situation, circumstance you find yourself in, in life, how to follow Him. have been learning to trust the Lord at all times and all circumstances and to live faithfully before Him because He's coming back. And we want to give an account to Him that is faithful when He does. And so this theme that we've been looking at in chapter 12 is now continuing into chapter 13. Our Lord has been teaching us, and that teaching has been interrupted by some folks who apparently want Jesus' hot take on some Current event. So first century Twitter is blown up and Pontius Pilate has apparently killed some Galileans as they were making a sacrifice in the temple. And you may have heard us talk about Pontius Pilate before. He was 
um, uh, evil Roman governor over Judea, and he had committed this atrocity. He didn't care much for the Jews. He had a tendency to rule them with a heavy and violent hand. And this killing of these Galileans probably took place around the Passover time, because that would have been the only time that lay people would have been involved in offering sacrifices in the temple. It seems that some of these Galileans had upset Pilate in some way. Maybe it was a political uprising or speaking out against him or something, but he killed them while they were worshiping the Lord in the temple. It would be like the military coming into this room and you know, murdering some people while we were taking the Lord's Supper. It would have been just unthinkable, tragic, just major news. And the people wanted to know Jesus' take on this major news. So they put a camera in his face and they get him like a talking head on CNN and Fox News. Jesus, what do you have to say about this current event? And Jesus' answer probably surprised them. And it should surprise us too. He says in verse 2, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Do you think God is punishing them? Do you think this is some Judean form of karma? Bad things happening to bad people and what goes around comes around? The badder the person, the worse the punishment. And this must have been a common notion in Jesus' day. In John chapter 9, the disciples, Jesus is walking past a man who was born blind, and the disciples say to Jesus, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Which isn't a very nice thing to say. The man is probably still sitting there. He's blind, but he isn't deaf. But apparently in their head, there was this direct connection between particular individual sins and this man's suffering. And you'd be surprised at just how much of this philosophy is alive and well today. There are whole organizations who claim the name of Christ, who seek to trace illness and suffering and poverty to particular unrepentant individual sin, either in your own life or in the life of a, an ancestor, generational curses. And it's an appealing philosophy because it's so easy. Baptized karma gives an easy answer to suffering. If you are suffering, well, it's your fault. You need to find a source and you need to deal with it yourself. It's really easy because you never have to humble yourself or reckon with a loving God who knows more than you know, who is working more good for you than you could possibly imagine, whose purpose in suffering is for your good, even if you can't understand it. Now, let's establish something right away. All suffering is due to sin. However, not all suffering is due to individual, particular sin. You see, all suffering in the world is due to the effects of sin in the world. But individual, particular sins do not cause 
all suffering universally. And I say universally because there is actually some connection between sin and suffering. I mean, Jesus told one paralyzed man after he had healed him, he said, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And of course, you all know this principle. If you lie on your taxes and get caught, you're going to suffer. If you do your job poorly and get fired, your suffering is caused by your sin and not working with your whole heart. If you eat a whole tub of ice cream, your belly's going to ache. It's simple math, consequences and actions. But that's not the same thing as saying those Galileans who were killed were killed because they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans. There's another principle here that you need to know, dear Christian, and that is that God does not punish you for your sin. Dear Christian, your God does not punish you for your sin. We talked about this last week. Jesus Christ suffered the penalty of your sin, all of your sin, past sin, present sin, future sin. Jesus paid it all. And your God does not commit double jeopardy by punishing you for a sin that He already punished in Christ. Now, of course, the Lord disciplines those He loves, but that is not the same thing as punishing for sins. So when you are in a season of suffering or going through some affliction, you don't necessarily need to go back through your calendar to find some unrepentant sin. And you most certainly don't need to climb your family tree and to find some fool who took an oath with the devil and cursed your family for generations on. That is silliness. So Jesus gives his hot take in verse 3. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You get what Jesus is saying, don't you? That the suffering of those sinful Galileans was tragic. And it should cause all sinners to humble themselves and to say, but for the grace of God, there go I. And so the Lord then brings up a different tragedy, some news of his own, but it drives the same point. Verse 4, were those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Luke chapter 13 is the only time we read of this tragedy, and we don't know what caused it. There was a reservoir in the southeastern corner of Jerusalem called the the Pool of Siloam, and the tower of Siloam could have been maybe a part of the, the city wall in Jerusalem that maybe they were repairing it and it fell. Or uh, we, we do know that Pilate conducted a renovation uh, of that area to improve the city's water supply. So perhaps there was a tower that fell and killed some people. We don't know. It does appear to be some kind of construction-related disaster. It's a different situation. But the point is the same. That those who perished in That disaster, were they worse sinners than everyone else in Jerusalem simply because the tower fell on them? Was God punishing them? 
And again, Jesus gives the same answer. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is telling the crowd, we are all sinners. Point being, the implication is, we all deserve that the tower would fall on us. So when tragedies happen, we always ask, why did the tower fall? And it's a good question, and it's an important question. But there is a much bigger and much more important question to ask. And that is, why doesn't every tower fall? Why do bad things happen to good people isn't the right question. The question we ought to be asking is, why do good things happen to bad people? That's a way better question. And the answer to that question, ironically, is that every tower doesn't fall because bad things happened to the only good person. See, the reason that why do bad things happen to good people isn't a good question is because there are no good people. The Bible says that no one does good. No, not one. There was only ever one good person. Jesus Christ, the righteous, was the only good person. And the message of the gospel is that bad things happened to the one good person so that good things would happen to bad people. Jesus Christ gave His life to suffer the penalty of His people's sins. And all those who turn and repent of their sins... Receive the good things that he deserved. So all our bad goes on him. All his good goes on us. If you don't believe in a real, personal, and good God, then suffering doesn't mean anything. If God is not real or personal, then suffering, like the suffering of children, like the suffering of whole races of people, means no more than the suffering of a squashed ant under your foot on your way back to your car. If all we have is impersonal cosmic forces in the universe, then there is no such thing as love, care, or justice. But if there is a God in heaven who knows and loves and cares and is personal and is in control of all things, then suffering really matters. It means something. Now, we may not always get to understand what that meaning is, but that doesn't mean there isn't any. It just means that we are the creature. That He is the Creator, and that there are things about the way that He has chosen to run the universe that are above our pay grade, and we have to trust Him. And that's the point and lesson of suffering and disaster. They're meant to humble us, to cause us to repent of our sin. So if you're not a Christian sinner, Jesus Christ carried the cross up Calvary to suffer the penalty of sin in His body. 
And God raised him from the dead on the third day. Every person who turns to him in faith is forgiven of their sins and given the good gift of eternal life. Do that today. Friend, repent of your sins. Trust in him and be saved. Because the reality is you don't know how much time you have. Your Lord has been incredibly patient with you. He's upheld all the towers up to this point. They haven't fallen on you. All the bridges have carried your weight. None have collapsed under you. Sickness has not taken your life to this point, And you, dear sinner, are on borrowed time. Paid for by the mercy of God. And listen to what the Lord Jesus says next. God's mercy is unlimited. But the time he gives to repent is not. Verse 6. Jesus told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on the tree and found none. He said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should I use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it loan this year also. I'll dig around it, I'll put manure on it, fertilize it, and if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not... You can cut it down. Now behold God's patience with Israel. Anyone in Jesus' audience who was familiar with the Bible would have immediately understood the connection between this parable and God's people, Israel. For all throughout the Old Testament, Israel is likened to a fig tree. Jeremiah chapter 8, 24, Hosea 9, Micah 7. Israel is a fig tree, a fig tree that produced no figs. And the owner of the vineyard tells the groundskeeper, for three years I've come looking for figs on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. He tells him, go ahead and cut it down. It's wasting the ground, which is a perfectly reasonable demand. It's a fig tree. That's why I planted it there. I want figs. And if this tree isn't going to give me figs, then I don't know the point of this tree. But the vine dresser advocates for another year. Let me work on the tree. Let me dig around the tree. Let me expose the roots of the tree and fertilize the ground around the tree and give it some extra care. And if this tree produces fruit next year, well and good. But if it doesn't, cut it down. The parables are stories which teach a lesson. And the lesson of this parable is rather easy to discern. God expects a fruitfulness from His people, that He is merciful, that He is patient, and that He is giving time to His people to respond to that mercy and patience before it's too late. God had chosen a people for Himself, Israel, a people to whom He gave the law and the prophets. And for centuries, Israel and her leaders rejected the Lord, and He would discipline them. They would repent for a short while, and then they would turn away from the Lord again. And this happened over centuries. And finally, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, an extra year, you might say. And so, God the Son 
dug around the roots and fertilized the tree, giving extra care to the tree, special grace. But as we will see in the coming chapters of Luke, they will reject him too. And the Apostle Paul asks this important question in Romans chapter 11. Has God then rejected his people? And his answer is no. That God has not rejected his people, Israel. But that there is a remnant chosen by grace. That through Israel's trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And should this cause the Gentiles to boast? No, Paul says. Because if God broke off the natural branches and grafted in the unnatural branches, well, then the unnatural branches shouldn't boast and be arrogant towards the natural branches. Besides, Paul warns us, the unnatural branches, do not become proud but fear, for if God does not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. And we ought to take note of both the kindness and the severity of God. And that is the point of this parable. That there is a kindness in God to give more time. And there is a severity in God. And that one day that time will run out. Our God is merciful. And He is just. So friend, I don't know where you are with God this morning. I'm pleading with you. Hear me pleading with you, reconcile with Him before it is too late. Because one day, and you don't know when, your life will be required of you. The Master will come to inspect the tree, and it will be too late. Some of you have been in church for years. You've heard hundreds of sermons and calls to repent. You say you're a Christian, and if the master came, I wonder, would he find fruit on the tree? Would he find you delighting in Christ? Would he find the fruit of the love of God and the love of neighbor in your life? Would the master find joy and peace budding in your life, blooming in your life? Would He find you patient and kind? Does goodness and faithfulness characterize your life? Are you gentle and self-controlled? If, if you say no, you should be very afraid. Friend, do not presume upon the kindness of God. Because His mercy is unlimited, but your time is not. Turn to Him today. Admit that you're not a Christian and repent of your sins. And you will find Him immediately willing to forgive you and to fill you with His Holy Spirit through whom you will begin to produce the fruits of His work in your life. You'll find yourself growing in love and joy and peace, patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. How do we work these two passages together. What does the first section of this passage have to do with the second? What does verse 6 to 9 have to do with verses 1 to 5? And I think the answer is that suffering and disaster are good teachers meant to humble us 
and call us to repent to produce the fruits of repentance. That suffering and disaster remind us that we are creatures. We are dependent in a million ways that we don't yet understand upon the Lord's grace, upon His kindness. And when disaster strikes, falling upon others, Christian, we must humble ourselves. We must never boast in ourselves and let ourselves believe that the reason that disaster has fallen on them and we've been spared is because we are in some ways less sinful or less deserving. No, we must repent and lay ourselves before the mercy of our God and produce the fruits of that repentance. After the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, he told the Apostle Peter what kind of death he was going to die in order to glorify God. And the Lord revealed to Peter that he would be a martyr that he would die for the sake of the gospel. And Peter asks the Lord and says, well, okay, if that's my story, well, what about him? What about John? Will he die as a martyr just like me? And do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? He said, well, what is that to you? You follow me. Speak about it. It may be that the Lord has a plan for your life to carry you through some unimaginable suffering. It may be that He intends to bring glory to Himself, revealing His sufficiency to you through stripping you of comforts. It may be that God's plan is to take glory to Himself by platforming someone else and putting you in the background. Maybe it may be God's plan to give you the miracle of healing. It may be God's plan to give you the miracle of faithful endurance. In either case, hear your Lord saying to you, what is that to you? You follow me. Christian, your Savior has a plan for your life. In whatever soil He has planted you, grow. Produce the fruits of your faith. For how many of us have wasted precious energy longing for the ways that things used to be while neglecting to produce the spiritual fruits in this season? How many of us waste precious time being discontent in our present situation, being envious of others, while the Lord is looking for the fruit of contentment in this season of our life? And let us rejoice in the mercy of our heavenly vine dresser who sees all of this and says, I'll give her another year. Let me give him another year. Let us rejoice in the mercy of our heavenly vine dresser who gets his holy hands dirty, who digs around the roots of our lives 
who prunes our lives of disordered affections. And let us sing praises to our merciful Lord who advocates for another season, who endures with us another year of immaturity, another year of impatience, another year of vainglory. And let us be fruitful in the place where the Lord has planted us. Let us trust that the Lord, in whatever season we find ourselves in, is working for our good. Let us look to Him for strength, grace to endure whatever hardship He brings us into. And let us humble ourselves, not thinking too highly of ourselves, and not envying the success of others. Let us look at the good that we see the Lord doing in others' lives and give Him thanks. Let us look at God's blessing that we see Him giving to others and give Him thanks. And when suffering comes, dear Christian, and it will come, let us not think it strange. And let us not question the goodness of our God when it does, but let us trust Him. He is a good vine dresser and he knows what is best for his vine. He is patient, always working for our good. And let us take the words of Paul and apply them to our own hearts for comfort. Where he wrote in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. What is that to you? You follow me. Old Job didn't get everything wrong about suffering, didn't get everything right either. But he did tell his unhelpful friends, the Lord has done it. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And so trust him, PBC. You don't know everything. You don't need to. You just need to know the one who does. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we have been too much like Job's friends and the Lord's disciples. We've looked on the suffering of others and believed they deserved it. And when you've allowed suffering into our lives, we call it injustice. Forgive us, O Lord, for we are poor, blind, foolish creatures. Please forgive us our self-focus and impatience. Forgive our loose tongues. When our hand ought to be over our mouths, we speak of things which we do not understand. Have mercy on us. Look, Father, upon your Son Jesus, His perfect life and His death, His constant submission to your will. See His righteousness. And see it accounted to us. And please grant us your Holy Spirit's power to trust you through suffering and setback and through discontentedness. Give us grace to wait and be patient on your promises. Make us faithful and fruitful where we are. That Jesus would receive the praise that only he deserves. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon.
As we look to God's word for an assurance of forgiveness, we find in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 7, these words. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon.